Hey everybody, how you doing out there? Dave Smith here, just dropping in for a minute to introduce this upcoming talk. This talk is on the beautiful mental factors associated with mindfulness and the teachings of Abhidharma, in which there are five categories, awareness, authenticity, caring, contentment, and creativity. This idea was developed by my teacher, Steve Armstrong, and I've reorganized these ideas here for you. These talks were given over a series of Sundays from my Dharma mentoring program, and I have spliced them all together here for your enjoyment. Uh, so if you're interested in this uh, topic, I'm sure you'll find it to be interesting. Also, there are spaces available in the Dharma mentoring program. You can email me here off the podcast. Hope you enjoy, and I hope to see you live in living color someday, someday soon. Be safe out there, y'all. All right. Welcome to episode five of Teachings on Nibbana in which they will only get more and more interesting. I'm going to see how long I can milk this for. That's like my new thing. I like how, how many talks can I give on certain topics? Um, so um, just to kind of give you, for those of you who haven't been here every week to follow you along, and I'll update the course and make sure I get the talks in there. This, this is the fifth one. So I've been talking about Nibbana and how it's a, such an important and misunderstood teaching. Um, and so we're going to, if you look at where, where does it sit in like the Four Noble Truths or the Four Tasks, as I prefer to call them, is it's really, a, Nibbana is the hinge of the path that I would say. It's, Nibbana is when we move from living in a reactive, habituated mind, behaviorally, psychologically, verbally, into more of a space of freedom, a space of choice, a space of openness. And I think it's important that we see it as really the hinge to the path. So a lot of the work that we do in our Dharma practice, frankly, and this is moment to moment, is really negotiating psychologically and emotionally the reality of the first two truths or the first two tasks. And, and that is waking up moment to moment that life is, by all appearances, a little bit more hard than you thought it was going to be. And having to have some embodiment and some embracement and some acceptance of uh, our, our situation at hand, our human experience, uh, which is which is a dukkha, uh, and so here we're te- we're not understanding. We're not again to reiterate. I am not teaching a practice that leads to the end of dukkha. I, I have no interest in that. I don't think it's actually possible. Nor do I think it's at all in line with what the Buddha had said. So dukkha is here to stay. And so as we kind of learn how to deal with that through metta, through mindfulness, through all these practices, we, we begin to start to see that really what gets us in trouble is this papancha, is this arising, this craving, this reactivity, this wanting this and not wanting that and being upset about this and being upset about that. And this argument with reality that we seem to find ourselves in where this fucking moment is wrong. This shouldn't be happening right now. I shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't be like that. And it's just a kind of lack of acceptance. There's a, a filtering. There's a, a delusion, you know. And, 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 it, and to be honest with you, I, I'm humbled by perva- how pervasive that is and how much of my day and my life I find myself in that very, very psychological space. Or I should be better at this now. That's, when you really start to Dharma practice, you add that one into the mix. I should be past this. You know what I mean? And and now then 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 the added feature of like wow, I guess I'm not very good at this either. Not only am I suffering, but I'm actually not even doing it right. You know. And, and, and this is all this is all pre-nibbana. 
you know, this is what we're dealing with, folks. This is, this is, welcome to your mind, you know? So we have to understand that. We have to befriend that. We have to understand that that is actually a product of natural selection. That's a product of evolutionary psychology. It has nothing to do with you. It's not your fault. It's millions and millions and millions of years of, of fucking biology. And whether you realize it or not, your mind is a biological phenomenon. I know that we think of consciousness as consciousness is this kind of mystical, you know, above it all kind of thing, which is where Buddhism gets problematic. But consciousness is just a biological outcome. It's just the fact that you're a living organism coming into contact with an environment and then consciousness emerges. It's really nothing special. So Nibbana, when we, when we put aside that, when we have some acceptance of things that they are, when we overcome our reactivity, when we overcome our, it should be like this, it should be like that, we get in this space, right? We, we, mindfulness practice is really the, the key ingredient to get into this space. Now, it's oftentimes sought as the end of the path. This is not the end, this is the beginning. When you are in a Nibbanic space, you have, you're just starting now. And then what that does is that Nibbana opens up the space of the Eightfold Path, and now we're entering a way of life where we're more aware of this coolness guided by our views and our perspectives and our intentions and our speech and our actions and our effort and our awareness and our focus. And all that stuff comes after Nibbana. And so when we look at every single book on Buddhism, except for one probably written by Mr. Batchelor, you will find that the Eightfold Path is the path that leads to Nibbana which is backwards, actually. Now, of course, it reinforces it. So the more skillfully we live an eightfold path, the more skillfully we live in the world, our experience of Nibbana increases. So there, there's a symbiotic relationship there between cultivating a path and experiencing Nibbana. The more I experience Nibbana, the more I able to cultivate the eightfold path, which gives me the opportunity to more experience Nibbana, which allows me... So they, they're kind of a dance, they, they, they're, 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 it's not necessarily causal, it's interdependent. They, they, they mutually support each other. Does that make sense? And that's largely, that's largely what y'all have been doing for years, you know, whether you think about it that way. So I want to talk today about uh, the Abhidharma. We're going to look at, there's, there's um, 26 beautiful mental factors in the Abhidharma. Uh, and there's 19 of them that are considered to arise in mindful, nibbonic states of consciousness. And, uh, and I talked about them before, but just to tell you, the categories that I've defined are the categories of awareness. So the mental factors associated with awareness, authenticity, caring, contentment, and creativity are the categories. There's a lot of categories. Um, so uh, I want to start today with, um, and there are really no, in no particular order, um, authenticity. I want to talk about authenticity because I think that's, that's a really important concept in our world. I think it's gotten, to, it's gotten to become a little bit of a buzzword, which is a bummer. So I want to try to talk about what that really means. And so in, in the Abhidharma, the, and, and this is just what I believe and, and what I found to be true, and, and there's varying degrees of debate on this, so you can take with it what you will. But the Abhidharma thinkers have categorized sati, so mindfulness is one of the beautiful mental factors. And what they say is when mindfulness, right mindfulness, nibbonic mindfulness, is present, uh, 18 other mental factors also co-arise with that. So from a Abhidharmic perspective, mindfulness is probably a pretty rare moment. 
You know, we sometimes we're aware, but we're not fully aware. Now, we're not completely aware. We're not samasati, complete mindfulness. But we find that. So when we start to see mindfulness in, in Nibbana as an integrated experience, we find that there's these other mental factors that arise. And, and I think that this is the, what are called sob, uh, sobana, sabana, mental factors, which actually means beautiful. The other way this word is translated is virtuous, ethical, shining, lovely, fortunate, and auspicious are other ways these are mental factors that are categorized. So I, I like the word beautiful here. I think it's I think to think of the mind as a beautiful experience, beautiful behavior, beautiful imagination, uh, pretty good, right? Like that's a very, I think, uh, important way to think about the mind. So how do we create and cultivate a beautiful mind? And so when we think about um, authenticity, there's just three mental factors that I think are associated with authenticity, and I'll talk about them a little bit here. Um, and I think the first one and the most important one, which is interesting, I think, that is the first of these mental factors that even precedes mindfulness is uh, sada or faith or confidence. And um, I think the word faith uh, has kind of because of the way it comes down through religion and the way that people like us, Western thinking, speaking people, English thinking minds, uh, a lot of times associate faith with belief. So my faith is what I believe in. But Buddhist faith is, is really kind of a different thing. And I think that probably the better word would be confidence and, and really self-confidence. So a lot of this mental factors, a lot of this beautiful mental factors, uh, a lot of the ways in which we start to thrive and to flourish and to do well in our lives is pretty much dictated by a sense of, I think I might be able to do this. And I don't think confidence, because I think a lot of times we associate confidence with arrogance, which is a problem. I think spiritual confidence is sometimes called samvega. Um, you know, if you think about anything that you've ever done in your life that was scary or challenging or difficult, um, that was meaningful to you, um, you were only able to do that because, like, you thought that you could. You know, you stopped drinking or doing drugs. You got out of a destructive relationship. You went back to school to get a degree. Uh, you know, you've, all the things that you've done, all of those things that you've ever accomplished up until this moment, you were only able to do those things because you thought that you could. Right? So I think we have to understand how important invaluable and how beautiful of a mental factor confidence actually is. And if we look at, interestingly enough, if we look at its antonym, doubt, which is one of the five hindrances, which is actually taught by the Buddha as the most destructive force in the mind that I can't do, I don't deserve, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I won't be able to do this because, uh, as the antonym for it, we can really, when we see how, how painful and destructive that can be, sometimes that can even elevate the sense of sada or confidence to a level of, uh, to really where it needs to be. And it really is the beginning of beautiful mind beautiful life, thriving. So I think it's important that we just learn to figure out subjectively where does that fit in the schema of my psychology? How much of that do I have? Where do I have it? There's probably areas in your life where you feel very confident and probably areas in your life where you don't really feel confident so much. Again, you've probably heard me say this before. One of the areas in my life where I feel lucky is I feel lucky in Dharma. 
uh, because I, I, right from the beginning, right from the very moment of learning about it, I, 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 it carried with me a great deal of faith, trust, and confidence, which has never really faded too much. And, uh, and I attribute most of my success to that very, that like, okay, um, and even the idea of like, sometimes it's even like, I'm not sure if I can do this, but I'm pretty sure this actually will work. So sometimes it's a confidence in the Dharma itself. And I think that I have found that for me, I've always had that confidence, but the confidence in my ability to perform and to do what needs to be done has wavered to some degree. So we just need to learn to keep an eye on that. Um, the, the next one, which is I think I could talk about for hours, is there's a set, a set of a very controversial set of mental factors in the Abhidharma called Hiri and Otapa. Uh, and they're, tra- they're, they're under their teachings called the guardians of the world. And the, the Buddha basically says if it wasn't for Hiri and Otapa, the world would basically fall into disarray, chaos, um, violence, war, uh, oppression, all of these terrible things. And Hiri and Otapa are generally translated as uh, shame and moral dread. So it's interesting that uh, in the Buddhist lexicon of mental factors that shame is considered to be a beautiful mental factor. And if we look at shame from emotional science, from, from Ekman's and CEB, uh, the, where shame is constructive is also where we would find it to be constructive. This is where Buddhism and emotions of science really line up, and that as a, as a moral compass. So shame, uh, in the way that I would translate it, is really modesty, or I really think the word that does the best job here is humility, which, which I take a great... Uh, I take a page out of my AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, puts a lot of emphasis on humility. And, and I was talking to Stephen Smith about this recently. It's actually a bit of a drag that the word humility and the concept of humility doesn't, get, doesn't show up in Dharma conversations very much at all. Um, but that humility in that sense of um, not so much shame, but a kind of a conscience is a kind of, I don't want to do harmful things. I want, to, I want to be a good person. I actually have a moral compass. I know what my moral compass is, and I spend a great deal of my waking hours to try to live by that moral compass. In another way to say this would be sila. Authenticity is largely a sila practice, and that is being true. And it's not like agreeing with or subscribing to the five precepts and all these thou shalt not ideas that we get, which is just super problematic. But it's actually learning to understand what your specific moral compass is. And I would imagine for all of us, there's some universal overlap, but there's probably some things to you that are very, very important, like maybe things like loyalty or fidelity or honesty or compassion that we we could probably all name a big list of important things that are valuable to us, but there's probably some ones that we all would say are our top three. And you should know that. And usually the ones that are our top three, I know that for me, are the ones that have, um, like for me, I am, um, as they say, feed the right starving dog and he'll be your friend forever. Uh, I, I and also being a Boston uh, punk rock dude, uh, growing up in that world, I, and it also can be destructive. But I, I'm I'm pretty loyal. Like if I got your back, you're pretty good. You know, I've always been like that, um, and so that that that's always been important to me. 
you know, is, is, is to be there for people and to show up for people. And I also got some of that in, in my AA world. But that was also too part of just even when I was drinking and doing drugs, that was a big part of the world that I that I lived in in terms of being in bands and, and sticking up for your friends and doing the right thing. And it was a kind of a, more of a punk rock ethic for me historically probably than anything else. Um which actually brings me to the next one. So, you know, so having this sense of confidence, having a sense of conscience, knowing what your moral compass is. Um, and the last one, which doesn't get talked about a lot, the term they use is rectitude, which is a word that you probably never use. But rectitude is an interesting one because what it is, it's a straightforwardness of mind and body. It's really being like, you know, they, like they, they would say like, uh, on a street sense, they would say, oh, that dude, he, you know, he's a straight up dude. You know, he, he's like, and we say that word straight up. Sometimes they say, hey, I want to be straight with you. You know, straight up. And it's, so it's honest. It's having that kind of firm, strong, honest rectitude. And it's actually rectitude of mind and body, which interestingly enough, when you start to practice, you start to learn that there's a lot of, the mind and the body don't always like each other. I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes my mind doesn't like my body. And my body and, and my, you know, my body doesn't, there, there can be a lot of that whole, what they call in cognitive science, the, the mind-body problem, um, which is a thing. And so I think a lot of times when we try to sit, it's like, you know, like you're on, you're on a meditation retreat, you're sitting and your legs hurt and your mind doesn't like the fact that your legs hurt. Right? And your mind's like, well, this meditation would be so much better if my legs didn't fucking hurt or my back didn't hurt, if this was more comfortable. And on the flip side, sometimes the body is totally comfortable and the mind's all over the place. And the body's like, I'm like right here, I'm breathing, I feel good, and my mind just won't shut up. You know, and, and it's like, and then that becomes uh, the kind of destructive relationship, the mind body problem. So rectitude, um, it's kind of this straightforwardness, this integration of mind and body where there's no confusion. There's uh, just a kind of, here we are, this is how it is, we can do this. It's also understood in the way that it's, um, if you look at its opposite in the Abhidharma, uh, the Abhidharma like really defines things almost exhaustively. But the, I thought it was interesting is the opposite is a hypocrisy. The opposite of, hypo- of, of rectitude is hypocrisy. And the way that that shows up is the not walking of the walk. Which for me, uh, having been in bands and Buddhist worlds and kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, gang-like mentalities around communities, um, I have a big, big issue with the not walking of the walk. Um, that, that, that's always been a big, a big problem for me. Especially, uh, you know, if you, especially if you're talking a talk and not walking a walk. If you're like, I have friends in Boston. I have friends of mine who are kind of like, you know, for lack of a better word, they're kind of shitheads, right? They're like, they're not the best people. They're not the worst people. They're, you know, they're kind of unskillful, but they're so straight up about it. They're not, they're not fronting like they're, you know, they're just honest. And I'm like, I actually respect that more. If somebody's just like, yeah, I'm just like this, and I'm this is how I am, and I'm, you know, I don't really care about other people that much. I'm mostly interested in what, what I want, and you know, I'm just that's just how I am. I'm, I'm just, and I'm okay with that. And I'm like, okay, cool. At least you're being straight, you know. But it's the not walking of the walk. It's when you kind of, and this happens, of course. I don't want to go down this road too much, but this is like totally the big crime in, in spiritual communities is the not walking. We see this in AA rooms. We see this, we see this everywhere. And I would imagine for you, it's like, it's a bad look, right? When we see people like fronting, 
or, or being a pop posturing or posering or kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, attempting to embody this certain way of being in the world and, and their, their actions just do not back it up whatsoever. Um, you know, so so the part of it is like, well, I don't if I if that's a big trigger for me, I just try really hard to not be like that, right? So the better thing to do is to, is to not be so judgmental about those who don't do that, but to just be like, well, I don't want to be like that. So the these categories of authenticity are really about learning how to walk the walk, and learning how to be who you are, be honest about who you are, be straight about who you are, and then also reflecting on how f- that good that feels. It feels really good when we kind of are authentic and we embody ourselves and we're honest about our shortcomings and so on and so forth. And not trying, and this is also happens a lot in our culture, not trying to go into the center and present ourselves as a good Buddhist. Uh, which is very, uh, that was the one thing that always struck me as the inauthenticity that I would find in those rooms, which is, again, one of the big downsides of the loss of Against the Stream is that you could be yourself in that space and kind of get applauded for it. Um, acting authentic, uh, authentically. Um, and a lot of this, too, is about, is, is to some degree, for lack of a better word, is knowing our inner truth. Knowing... Um, what is my actual struggle here? And we all have our own little weird koans, don't we? We all have the big ticket items that we've been struggling with ever since we can remember, right? And, and, and it's good to know that, knowing your, knowing your um, you know, your dukkha, knowing your, your struggle and owning it and, and taking it on and saying yes to it. Um, and there's a lot of faith and confidence that comes when we do that. And we say, okay, this is, this is definitely a thing for me. Uh, a, I don't want to have any more aversion towards it or pretend like it's not happening. And a lot of times the hypocrisy and that we find in our subjective experiences when, we, when, we, when we're ignorant in the sense of we're ignoring something. And, and I see this in my mind a lot too, but there's things about yourself that you probably know are true that you like to ignore. You're like, I'm not really that bad or I'm not really like that. Uh, we ignore uh, I, I'm totally okay with how my last three relationships went, or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm totally happy in this area of my life. And it's like, no, I'm not. You know, and I think a lot of authenticity is owning the struggle, fully owning it, being like, yeah, this is like my thing, and I'm, I've been struggling with it for five decades, and you know what? And I'm, I'm just gonna take that on. Um, and the hardest part, probably, about authenticity are these, these. Uh, mental factor categories is, is learning how to be strong enough um, to manifest these in our life, to manifest these in, in our world and in our relationships. Because usually when we start to uh, compromise or put aside or withdraw from our sense of authenticity, our sense of seal and integrity is because uh, of something that the, we think the world doesn't want us to be like that, largely other people. You know, a lot of times we'll sacrifice our sense of integrity at the expense of a relationship. Um, and sometimes we can completely abandon all of it at the expense of a relationship because we, we believe that the relationship is going to provide us with all the things that we don't feel. We don't have the confidence that we can provide for ourselves. And when I say relationships, it can be another person, it can be a job, it can be a career, it can be a community, uh, it can be a whole lot of things. And so I think what really helps with that is the straightforwardness of being straight with ourselves, of like being like, okay, like, 
you know, this is really an inner job. Um, this is really inner work. Is there anything else I, I want to remember here? So yeah, so so we'll so this is the first category. We'll go through these week by week, but I thought I'd start with this one because I think it's so important. Um, and when we think about usually, if we look at the list, we think about like the, the three ones that are obvious are sort of awareness, contentment, and care. Uh, those are kind of meditative factors that we you know mindfulness and f for concentration and compassion. Those are sort of big ticket uh, items that we think about when we think of Buddhist meditation. But we maybe don't think about authenticity or creativity so much as being very important. And so I'll probably talk about creativity next week. Um, and so we can get a sense of these. So I think now we'll do some practice, a little bit of a hard practice to, to lead, but I'll do my best. And then we can uh, have some more conversation about this. So just to give you a scheme of where we are, we did four weeks in a row on Nibbana. And we're going to continue uh, on that perspective. The, the talks, I, I, what I did is I downloaded them all. Um, and I took the meditations out. So if you want the meditations, they're in the course. But I just, in the Dave Smith Dharma podcast, I put the four talks together. So if you want to just listen to all four talks as a kind of ongoing thing, you can do that at Dave Smith Dharma. I'll upload that later this morning. Last week, we started a discussion around the beautiful mental factors associated with the Abhidharma. And so just to repeat, we think about theirs. And this actually isn't from the Abhidharma, this is my teacher Steve Armstrong, but I like what he's done, is he, when we look at mindfulness, I think it's important to realize what a complex thing it is. Uh, it's a, basically an impossible word to translate. And in, in Abhidharma theory, our Abhidharma thought, which I really like, uh, they say that when mindfulness is present, when sati is present, it is accompanied by 18 other mental factors. So there's a lots of different things going on in mindfulness. So what I've been doing over the next couple of weeks is kind of breaking these down. And last week I talked about um, authenticity. So if you look at these in categories, we have five categories. We have awareness, authenticity, caring, contentment, and creativity are kind of these categories of mind that are really, really important. And each category has certain things. So today I want to talk actually about creativity as a um, category of mind experiences. Um, and so what are some things, I guess maybe this is the one that maybe with authenticity, the one that's most unexpected. And I think really important, like how do we take mindfulness practice on as a creative endeavor? Because I think actually it, it requires a great deal of creativity. You know, it's not just about learning and mastering a technique, you know, it's like, to me, I, I use the analogy of music where it's like, you know, um, you could say music is Dharma and, um, but you want to be able to create songs and to be able to create songs and be able to play and being able to play things that are true to your experience that are authentic to you, you have to be creative. And so even the Buddha is very clear about may no two of you travel the same path. And that I would probably say that, you know, with 26 people on the screen today, there's probably 26 different practices going on. And I think if we don't understand or include creativity as part of the uh, meditative experience or really part of our, our Dharma work, we, 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 you're going to fall into being very dogmatic very quickly. And dogmatic is kind of the opposite of creativity. And let's be honest, religion does not have a lot of tolerance for creativity. 
you know, we're not encouraged to walk into the synagogue or to the church or to the Dharma hall, for that example, and feel at all encouraged to debate or to argue or to have even a constructive dialogue with the person teaching. That would be considered very rude and, het- and her- heretical. Right, so there's not a lot of room, I don't think, in, in basic in, in spiritual practices and any religious kind of endeavor. Creativity is kind of frowned upon. Where you went and said, well, I'm going to do it like this. You can't go in there with the attitude of that. And so I think when we um, start to have a more of a subjective experience for our own practice, if these, these Abhidharma factors are really helpful in terms of um, being creative in our practice. So there's actually... Let me take a look over here. One, two. There's four mental factors that I would categorize as aspects of creativity from mindfulness. So mindfulness and creativity. I'll say what they are and kind of go through them one at a time. The way that they're translated in the Abhidharma, they use strange words like malleability, rectitude, I talked about last time. Um, But I'll try to translate them in words that are more useful to us. And so that would be lightness of mind. Um malleability, proficiency, and adaptability. I think that these things all require some degree of creativity. And the first one, we maybe don't think of as as being creative, but I think it really does, and that is a sense of lightness of mind, which is a practice that's associated with the opposite of the hindrance of lethargy, or sloth and torpor, as it's more called. And so... This one's really hard for me because I don't experience things like I experiencing I experience the world, I experience my thoughts, and I experience my emotions as being very heavy. And I, it turns out I'm actually kind of a, I'm actually also heavy. <laughs> like if you put me on a scale, I'm heavy. Uh, you know, like we use that word a lot too. Like when when somebody tells you a story or something happened to them that's really difficult or challenging, you say, "Oh man, that's heavy." And I, I this one's hard for me because I actually existentially feel heavy. Everything weighs heavy on me. I, I tend to hold on to things. Um, the only benefit of this I've noticed, and I talked to my, my Ayurvedic doctor and I had a conversation about this, which is interesting, is I also remember things very well because I hold on. I have a very heavy memory. So I, I, I remember, sometimes when I talk to you one-on-one, I remember our last session better than you do. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? So the... Um, we, you know, we tend to have stiff personalities. We tend to hold on to things too heavily. And part of that, from a Dharma perspective, is the way that we hold tightly to our views, fixed views. Um, being right, thinking the way that we see things or the way that we know things is the right thing. And so having a lightness of mind um, is really, 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 really important. And light, not as in like illumination, but light as in like heft, as just holding, holding our experience lightly. You know, and I would say of these four, this is the one I'm the worst at. I I don't really (laughs) hold things very lightly once in a while, unless I'm not interested or something, then I can do it. But if if I have any skin in the game or if there's any self, so a lot of it too is like my sense of, this is probably why you know that I've not been a huge proponent of anatta practice or not self, even though I did do five talks in a row on it this summer. Uh, the, The concept of self weighs really heavy on me. Um, and it does most of the time. I really feel like me most of the time. Um, and so that I think that there's a 
So I don't know how I, you know, so, so understanding this as a lack of creativity, I'm not really sure what to do with that, but I just want to kind of, for those of you who might feel that way, kind of point that out. This is the hardest one, I think, for a lot of us. The second one, um, malleability, being malleable, is interesting. There's a correlation that Buddhist scholars and uh, neuroscientists, so in the field of contemplative neuroscience, this mental factor of malleability is the one that's the most interesting to them because that's the one that's associated with plastic, neuroplasticity. And that is being able to alter uh, to actually use impermanence and to change your mind and to mold your mind and to uh, shape your mind into a way that's, you know, ultimately more constructive, more accurate, more more able to be with change. Um, and it's the opposite of uh, being rigid, um, which... It's hard for some of us. Some of us are very rigid in our in our personality, very rigid in our ways. And being malleable is really kind of um, there's actually research being done on the relationship between sati and malleability. And can and Abhidharma theory says that you can is that can what are some things you can do to kind of speed that up? Right? Can you crack the code on that one? How do we how do we actually from a contemplative point of view, how do we like find that? How do we find this plastic, this malleability, and actually uh, bring it more into fruition? Or we could say, how do you cultivate that? And that's a very interesting dialogue that's going on, because we do know, you know, the mind is not really, as we think of the mind, we don't usually think of the mind as a physical experience. The mind is usually more uh, of our software, uh, and we think of our brain as sort of our hardware or analog. But we do know that meditation does change the physical structure of your brain. So, you know, there's a lot of people dedicated to this explanation. Well, what the hell is going on there? You know, in what ways does meditation actually alter the physical structure of my brain and my neural mechanisms? And are there things, are there practices, are there specific techniques that I can do to increase that? Of course, nobody knows, but Abhidharma theory would say very, very much so here that mindfulness would be the doorway on how one could do that. So I think that's a really kind of exciting idea. Right? How do we become more, more malleable? Um, the other one I think that's really kind of hugely important and never gets really talked about as a mental factor so much is called proficiency. Um, to be proficient. And the analogy that I would make to this is that when they're talking about proficiency in Abhidharma as a mental factor, as a function of mindfulness, what they're talking about is actually skillfulness. How do we become skillful? How do we become proficient? And so I like, you know, I've always liked the idea actually it hit me early on in my practice that I really liked with when they talked about Dharma practice or meditation, not about being good at it or bad at it or right or wrong or eat, all these kind of binaries, but skillful. Like there's lots of ways in which I can be skillful at something. I can be become proficient. And so this is where, of course, clocking hours, actually sitting and doing a meditation practice is your best friend because we we want to become proficient in, in kind of understanding and working with and bettering the internal mechanisms of our own mind. And that can really actually only be done experientially. So, you, you know, you can't, you know, 
if you read a book, if you read Joseph Goldstein's 400-page book on mindfulness, at the end of reading that book, are you more mindful? Maybe. Probably not so much. You probably would have been better served spending the 10 hours it took you to read that book just actually sitting for 10 hours. And so we have to understand that, that first and foremost, the wisdom that we're trying to develop and the way that we're trying to move through Dharma work is really largely experiential. So if we're going to become proficient, so we become proficient in lots of different things. We become proficient in attention training. We're able to be in our breathing body longer. We're being able to resist the pull of secondary objects, you know, and we are able to stay put better. And that has, you know, great implications. And we're, so there's lots of ways. We're proficient in our language. We're proficient in our, our speech and our behaviors. We become, there's, there's so many different ways one can become proficient. And so I think seeing proficiency as a um, as a as an aspect of mindfulness is really cool because it also really also points it to being a creative thing. How do you learn how to become proficient in various skills? And I think the other thing, and I mentioned it earlier about my experience with lightness, I think we really have to be honest with ourselves, and we want to um, understand and have a clear understanding of where our lack of proficiency lies. You know, where, where do I get hung up in my life? Not just in my sitter practice, but like what gets me? Where do, where I, where do I not feel proficient? You know, what, what are some areas where I can be honest and then, 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 then become creative and like, well, how can I become more proficient in that area? Because the lack of proficiency or the lack of willingness to become proficient actually just feeds into this fixed view of myself. You're like, well, I'm just not really good at that. And then we just kind of have this like destructive self-acceptance of like, I just don't do good. You know, I get triggered too easily in these situations. And I, when I go into these contexts and these things, I'm just not really good at that. And then we just kind of like just make the assumption that we, we never could be. And we, we kind of buy into a stuckness that actually says that really goes against everything I've said since we've been on the call, like malleable. Because when I say I'm not proficient in something that says I'm, it's actually an admittance that I'm not malleable and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm guided by doubt and I don't think that I can. I, I'm just like this. This is just how I am. And so I think that it's really helpful. It's been really helpful for me to kind of always be clocking out like, where am I, where am I struggling? Where am I not feeling that proficient? And can I actually say, okay, let, let, let me see if I can address that let me see if i can go at that how can i go at that in a meaningful way instead of feeling defeated by it or feeling uh doubt about it or feeling a whole range of ways that i feel about it and i think a lot of that is just a willingness to just continue to try and try again you know i think that much of it is again comes back to effort you know Am I willing to maybe to do better tomorrow than I did today and kind of taking that on? But if we don't know what that is, we're not going to really get at it. And also if we have some um, denial, like we know what it is, but we don't really want to know, you know. And then the last one I think that's really cool. Let me see if I find my... Is, is what's called adaptability. They, the word they use in Abhidharma, which I don't like, is called wield, wieldedness, 
wilderness, which is a word I don't ever think I've ever used except for when I talk about Abhidharma. But it's really about adaptability. Uh, and also, too, as you know, I'm a huge fan of Goleman's work. And actually, one of his little primers, he has these little primer books, is called Adaptability. Uh, and as an um, emotional intelligence competency, this is like one of the most important things. And just what it says at the beginning here is, the adaptability competency means having flexibility in handling change, being able to juggle multiple demands, and adapting to new situations with fresh ideas or innovative approach. It means you can stay focused on your goals, but easily adjust how you get there. Well, that sounds pretty good. Right? So adaptability is, um, I think, one of the most, you know, they call it, you know, cognitive flexibility is another way it's talked about. In fact, the cognitive science research and the emotional intelligence people do a really, really good job of kind of pointing this out. And I just think it's interesting that there's a that there's actually a mental factor in Buddhist psychology that is pointing this out as a beautiful mental factor. And I think the big one that's probably relevant to all of us is one of the measuring sticks or one of the criteria that they use for measuring one's adaptability is how long does it take you to recover from a perceived setback? You know, you, you go through your day, you're planning on doing this thing or something's going to happen and something's going to work out in a certain way. Somebody's going to do something, whatever, whatever, right? You have this and then it doesn't happen and there's a setback. Sometimes it's perceived and sometimes it's real. But how long does it take you and what tools do you have to recover from that setback, to get back on task, to get back on hand without being resentful, without being blaming, without feeling like, oh, fuck it, like people are so, people are such a letdown, nobody does what they're supposed to do. And we get into this whole story about disappointment and frustration. And, and, and sometimes I know it can take me 24, 48 hours to recover from a setback, depending on what the setback is. And so again, these, are, these if you can think, you can imagine these are all pretty well connected, right? Being light about how I touch my experience, being able to be malleable, being able to be plastic, being able to see other possibilities, being proficient in that, and then being able to adapt to a new paradigm moment to moment. Because every moment, you know, I mean, how many times you've been on retreat and you had one a sit that was just terrible? You're like, oh, you, the bell rings. You're like, oh, I'm fucking, thank God that was over. That was a waste of time. What happened? Your mind was restless. Your knees hurt. Like never, nothing actually ever bad happens, right? It's just you sitting in the same damn room again on the same, you know, clunky old cushion, just doing the same drill, you know, but a lot of times we experience these perceived setbacks and, as my teacher Steve Armstrong likes to say on retreat, it's so funny. There's nothing like a good sit in the morning to ruin the rest of your day. You know what I mean? You get that like four o'clock sit, you're all sore and tired and cranky and hungry. You're like, man, like this morning I was like merging with the deathless and now I'm just a total buffoon, you know? It's like, what happened? It's like nothing actually even happened. It's just an inner an inner experience. So we have, we have to deal with the reality of the perceived setbacks. But I think when we, especially for those of us who have busy lives, we have relationships, we have jobs, we have COVID crap, we have so much going on. Like I probably get three or four or five setbacks every day. You know, I drive Emmett to school and they come out and say, he can't go into the school. There's a, 
you know, there's a quarantine. So I'm like, okay, I guess Emmett's going to be home for the next 10 days. I didn't see that coming, you know? And so like we get these a lot and, and we really want to understand that as a mindfulness practice, we want to be able to recover from these setbacks quickly and get right back to, uh, back to where we were. Because I don't know about you, I can waste a lot of time, I can spin my wheels, and I can, I can get a lot, a lot of shit doesn't get done when I'm spinning into the setback. And so that's a kind of, uh, it's interesting that these, a lot of these ones are not only beautiful mental factors of Abhidharma, but they're all really correlated to competencies around emotion. Because usually what, what makes something what makes a setback a setback is there's always usually emotional component. Somebody doesn't do something, we become angry. <clears throat> Somebody doesn't do something, we become sad or we become contemptuous or we, we kind of get into these emotional experiences and we, we perseverate and we papancha, right? We just kind of like overthink the situation to death. A lot of times it's super destructive when it's a situation there's nothing you can do about it anyway. You know, and, and, and I don't know about you, but... I pay a tremendous user's fee for that. The tax of that is so not worth it. So I think really trying to see these as a, these, these adaptabilities and these being flexible, uh, and, and these all to me require a great deal of creativity. You know, I have to I have to be creative on how I do that, which means actually these also these creative, um, like if you stand if you look at these categories like the creative factors of Abhidharma versus like the content factors are actually very, very different things. Like being content is helpful, but a lot of times in the, on the fly, in the heat of the moment in our lives, we got to be creative. We got to, we have to be active. We have to be able to respond. We have to be able to use thinking and use creativity and use logic. We have to be able to, you know, do something, you know, on the, on the quick. And so it's not this kind of where mindfulness gets oftentimes parked, unfortunately, is this kind of open monitoring, just kind of passive watching of things come and go, right? Much of the time in our lives, that's not that helpful. It's just sort of dismissive and kind of a procrastination. It's just like, oh, well, like, once, yeah, once again, you know, here's another person not doing what they said they were going to do. And we, we can kind of have too much uh, contentment. That can, even contentment can be, can, can be destructive, because we're not able to respond. And so these creative mental factors are really meant for us to kind of, they're, they're very doing, they're very active. They're probably the most active um, functions of, of, of mental factors. And they require us to be able to, really to kind of move, to move, to move, to adapt to, you know, and, and of course, ultimately, the last thing I'll say is it's really about adapting and working with three characteristics again, over and over again. How well do we adapt? Do we recover from change? Oh, I thought this was going to happen. This isn't going to happen. This is happening. And how long does that take? Two seconds. You get that email. You get that text. You, oh, shit. I guess that's not going to work out. Right? Having to adjust to that new paradigm. So a lot of it has to do with permanence. A lot of it has to do with dukkha. You know, the constant... Um, there's a Zen master who talk, calls about it being the disease of the mind. This constant preference, I don't want this, I want that. I want that, I don't want this. It's like, well, good for you. You know, like, you don't want shit to be happening like this right now. Okay, great. Like, reality doesn't care about your preferences. 
in your goal. So a lot of it is trying to be adaptive around dukkha. And then, and then the last one, I think the hardest one too, because like, I, I feel it so heavy, is being adaptive uh, and being creative around ourself and not being so fixed and locked into your personality. And believing the narrative that you tell yourself about your fixed personality. Oh, I'm just like this. Right? And so these, these creative mental factors are really, really help us use these marks of existence, these core ideas in, in Dharma practice to really, you, you know, use them to our advantage rather than our detriment. Because also we have to understand that the three marks of existence, people get so caught in like them being ontological, like that's just kind of the, na- the nature of the universe. Things are just changing and difficult and not self, which is really like super missing the point. The three characteristics are just meant to be helpful. The Buddha is just trying to say, if you notice these three things on the regular, you're going to do better. Your life is going to go smoother if you can just kind of bear in mind the constant changing nature of things. If you can bear in mind that you're going to be getting things that you don't want and not getting things that you want. And you're going to bear in mind that a lot of what makes this hard is your stance and position on these things. So they're really, they're really meant to be helpful. They're meditation practices. They're not, they're not the Buddha's description of reality. Right? And I think that that's where they become kind of useless is when they become ontology, which is like, oh, essentially everything is dukkha, not self, and permanent. It's like, okay, even if that's true, like, if that, you know, it's not helpful. If I don't remember, if I don't bear that in mind, if I don't include that, if I'm not using that as a kind of, as a somewhat of a dashboard barometer, you know, you know, it's like, it's like the temperature outside. It's good to know what the temperature outside is because you can prepare for it. But like these three marks of existence is just like the constant temperature of experience, you know, and we forget that. We forget, we forget. We think because we read it in a book at one point that we're just going to, we make these assumptions that we're doing it anyway. So let's do, let's do some practice on this. Um, kind of a tricky practice to do guided, but I'll do my best. But I guess part of it is the way I would think about it is to see um, how light you can hold the tendency of your mind to wander and how well you can recover and how well you can adapt from getting lost into thought and returning back, lost into thought, returning back, and seeing that actually as a creative process rather than a skill one must master, but working with your mind creatively in in the present time experience. So you can find a comfortable way to sit. All right, so I'm going to begin here um, where we at today. So we've been going through these um, mental factors in the Abhidharma, so just to kind of give you some background for those who haven't been listening, is that in Abhidharma theory, which I think is a good theory, um, mindfulness is a word that we all know probably very well and maybe not as well as we think. But in, in Abhidharma theory, the, the compendium of Buddhist psychology, when mindfulness is present, sati, when sati is present in the mind, it's understood to be accompanied by these um, 19 or 20, however it is, other mental factors. So when mindfulness is present, there's a lot of other things going on, a lot of other things going on. And so uh, we've been going through those, and what I do is I have them in categories. So the first category we talked about was the category of authenticity. Um, What are the things that make up authenticity? Um, What are the things that make up 
um, creativity, which I think are the ones that we don't think about so much, authenticity and creativity, which I think are words for non-monastic folks like us, for those of us who are living life in the world, probably would acknowledge that being authentic and being creative are like really important things. And, you know, being creative um, in a kind of religious context, you know, is really kind of frowned upon. Um, you're, you're really actually, in most religious contexts, you're really mostly just expected to behave and to just believe what's being offered. Um, but that's really not the case as we find in early Buddhism. So today I want to talk about the third category, which is uh, caring. So we, we want to have, a, a, our mindfulness wants to be authentic, it wants to be backed by authenticity and creativity, but also caring, uh, which I had a very, um, I had a really great week this week. I had the great luxury, some of you know I'm a big fan of John Peacock, and Stephen Batchelor was kind enough to put me in contact with John, so I had an hour-long discussion with John Peacock, who's one of the world-renowned, he's probably one of the most world-renowned Buddhist uh, not just practitioner, he's been, he's been, he's like Stephen, he's been a monk, he's been in the monastery, but he's really a Pali scholar and an Abhidharma scholar, and he's taught at universities in, 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 in Oxford, and um, what's the other big one over, Oxford in, in Bristol, and he was really kind, and we had a long conversation, and I think we're going to continue um, probably meeting every month for however long I can get him to do such. So we had a long talk about um, these Abhidharma factors. And the interesting thing I'll point out that he pointed out was that um, caring, the word caring, we usually, we oftentimes associate caring with compassion. Um, and compassion as the Brahma Vihara, as you know, Karuna is actually not really the right translation. We think about uh, like kindness and compassion and empathetic joy and equanimity. But really what Karuna is, um, it's not really compassion, it's actually outward kindness. Um, so a lot of times we associate compassion with sort of caring about the struggle of other people or caring about uh, the struggle of ourselves, which, which is fine, but that doesn't really actually, just because I care or don't care doesn't really, doesn't mean I'm going to help or do anything. So when we think about kindness is really the word that we're looking for, and it's kindness extended outward towards other people. And so the, the, the real poly term for compassion, the word that actually appears mostly in the canon on almost any time the word compassion is mentioned, it's usually this term anukampa, which means to cry out at the crying of another. It's actually really about a dukkha. It's about, it's about feeling into the shared humanity and really a recognition that we really are all in this together. Uh, and so that, that feeling can inspire, well, if we're all in this together and everybody has this degree of suffering and pain in this human experience, then the only thing that would actually make sense would just to be kind. Not just kind to myself, but also kind to other people. So that was interesting. I, I learned a lot from him. Also, he agreed, and uh, I asked him a bunch of questions, and one of the things that is... The reason why I think this Abhidharma conversation is so important is many of you know the foundations of mindfulness, the third foundation of mindfulness, which is a big, big concept, mindfulness of mind. Chitta is the term that they use. You know that I'm a big fan of talking about chitta. And John Peacock actually said that unless you have a little bit of our Abhidharmic knowledge, it's really almost impossible to practice the third foundation, which is great because I've been saying this for like a decade and nobody really wants to hear it, frankly. <laughs> Because mindfulness of the mind, you know, the mind, our cognitive, we're in our minds all the time. And I don't know about you, but my mind is you know, messy uh, much of the time, really messy. 
So when we talk about this, so there's three actually mental, mental factors that are associated with, with caring. And there may be not ones that you would um, necessarily recognize, and I'll go through them one at a time. The first one is, is the pair of the one I talked about with authenticity. There's um, called the guardians of the world, Hiri and Otapa, which are usually translated as shame and fear of wrongdoing, which I don't think is a great translation. Um, but so we talk about the first one, we talk about authenticity as shame, as a sense of conscience, of not wanting to do things that make us feel bad. Sort of the anti-remorse, um, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. We don't, we, we don't want to live that way. And part of our ethical life, part of our sila practice is to try to, try to be careful about that. Um, but the other side of the coin is um, otapa, which is usually translated as fear of wrongdoing. It's really more about a concern for others. Um, and it's actually really trying to negotiate uh, unwholesome and wholesome, but really unwholesome and wholesome being a little more specific around understanding what is blameworthy and what is trustworthy. Um, and not blameworthy in the sense of blaming ourselves or blaming others, but knowing what kind of activities, what kind of behaviors, what kind of experiences we do that um, would warrant blame. And a lot of times it has to do with actually community. And it really has to do with the people that you hang out with. Because I would imagine that you probably have a list, maybe a short list, maybe a long list of people who you know that you care about that if you did certain things or certain activities, you sort of wouldn't want them to know about or you would feel bad if they heard. You know, it can be our therapists, teachers, sponsors, partners, kids, parents, the full range. And that's that, that fear, that healthy fear of a fear of I don't want to uh, harm other people, actually. The fear of doing wrong which is actually one of the few really kind of constructive fears that we have is a kind of a, a fear of a kind of a moral compass, a way that we're going, okay, I, I'm, I'm actually afraid to some degree of hurting other people's feelings or, or being harmful to other people and to do things that are blameworthy. And so this really plays into a lot of big ticket items in Dharma practice. And so that's, so how do we be, how do we become trustworthy people? How do we, uh, find and cultivate relationships with other trustworthy people and what kind of actions, speech, thoughts, behaviors, attitudes are trustworthy and what ones are blameworthy. Obviously, the biggest blameworthy thing is blame itself, you know, and I don't know about you, but that, 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 the, the blaming habit of the human race is actually kind of unbelievably massive, you know, and it's again, it's a blame, blame, blaming is a lack of um, not wanting to take responsibility. And it's a lot easier to shun responsibility if I can if I can find somebody or something to blame this on, then that's a lot more convenient than taking responsibility for myself, which is really kind of the ultimate anti Dharma thing in the world. Right. Like I don't I'm not taking responsibility for my experience. I'm going to find the scapegoat to blame. And even sometimes I'll even blame myself if I can't find anybody else. Someone has to be to blame for this, right? Someone's going down. Um, and so a lot of it really has to do with um, with community and actually, and this is, I think, really hard for many of us. I know that you guys are scattered all over the country and it's actually very, very rare very rare that you even would have access to something that would resemble a trustworthy Dharma community anywhere anyway. So the online experience has actually been good for that. And it's also not just that, but it's also trying to find community and other people who, who are of a like-mindedness. You know, 
because you know not all Buddhist philosophy or Buddhist teachings are, are are in agreement. So I find that like I have a hard time finding like-minded colleagues in the Dharma world, frankly. Uh, and the more that I study the early Buddhism, the more I talk to people like John Peacock and Stephen Batchelor, the more I realize I have very, very few like-minded people. In fact, a lot of people um, are very um, opposed to some of these uh, early ideas. And so, you know, and, and also when I was talking to John about this too, he was really applauding it because his whole endeavor and him and him and Stephen both, their, their whole kind of um, revolt is saying that the Dharma world, especially the insight world, really actually needs to have an academic framework for this stuff because a lot of this stuff, a lot of the stuff that's being taught is leading us to be very misguided. And I, I felt very misguided in the last some odd decades around certain teachings and certain practices and having unrealistic goals about what I think this practice is going to do for me. And I know some of you have shared that with me, and that's, that's very frustrating. You know, and, and John believes largely it's a lack of people wanting to really crack the book and be creative and be contra- confront- confrontational and be able to say, actually, that doesn't make sense to me, this whole ending of dukkha or a lot of things. It doesn't line up with my experience. I don't see it. It, doesn't, it seems to defy things like logic and reason, and I'm, and I'm not willing to just trust it on blind faith, actually. Which, which is funny because that's exactly what the Buddha told us to do the whole time, right? If it doesn't line up with your experience, if it doesn't make sense, then abandon it, right? But you can't go into a, a, a religious kind of context and start, you know, arguing with what's being said and get wrapped on the knuckles. Or, you know, some more polite version of getting wrapped on the knuckles, whatever that might be. So again, this, this sense of having a, a conscience. And so a lot of that, I think, is part of it is that we actually have to practice enough to, to the point where we become trustworthy to ourselves. You know, the Buddha is always saying that at the end of the day, you should really trust your own experience. Right? And that's hard to do. But, you know, you have to stand these teachings up. You have to stand these practices up, these ideas up against your direct experience much of the time to get that kind of self-efficacy, as they say in the clinical world, or some degree of corroboration. It's like, okay, I'm seeing how this is working now. Uh, and that, that's, that, there's a lot of, um, it's hard to navigate that territory, territory in American Buddhism because there's just so much stuff out there. So having a, a sense of conscience um, is a big part of caring. And ultimately, you have to be at the front of the line also which I think is where, where things get tricky for people. If people are compassionate and caring, but they usually don't include themselves in that in- equation, um, which is, I think, um, another thing that makes it so challenging. Um, the next two, I'll say what they are, then I'll go through them a little bit you're familiar with, are, are, tr- are translated, this is one thing that, that Buddhism does that's bothered me, they're translated as non-greed and non-hatred. And I used to find, I used to really cringe, or not cringe, but it used to frustrate me when I would look at a mental factor and it would say non-greed. And I'm like, well, what is actually non-greed? Um, or like a lot of times they say non-clinging, like, you know, liberation through non-clinging, second noble truth. And I'd be like, okay, like, I get that, but how does one non-cling? I know how to cling. I got that down, but I don't know how to non-cling. And when they say non-greed, actually, they don't so much, what they're really pointing to is everything else that's not greed, which is a lot of things. So largely what we're talking about in the kind of non-greed um, mental factor is um, the most obvious one would be, would be uh, generosity. And the way generosity works kind of as a mental factor, 
I mean, we know we kind of all know what generosity is, but usually in our culture, unfortunately, the, this term dana, we usually associate generosity mostly with a monetary kind of giving. You know, giving money to a good nonprofit organization. Usually, usually g- generosity in our culture, and it's not our fault. We just have adopted it. It's very transactional. And, and when we look at it from a mental factor perspective, it's very, very different. It's actually completely non-transactional. It's what it is. It's a lack of grasping towards a particular object. It's that we find objects that we desire. We, we find things that we want. It doesn't mean that we don't want them and we don't desire them, but there's a, there's a kind of lack of grasping. There's a lack of holding. It's that kind of uh, not detached, but non-attachment which when you think about metta, which is the next one, no surprise, uh, is a kind of the cool warmth of metta. It's, it, it's a kind of a coolness. Again, it's a nibonic experience. A generosity is a totally, you know, I talked to John about this as well. Where, so where does generosity fit in, in the Four Noble Truths? Generosity is a nibonic, it's all about nibbana. No nibbana, no generosity. So when we're in the coolness of Nibbana and the sense of non-reactivity, it's much easier for us to, to release our grasping and our clinging towards the object and a lot more easier for us to be more generous, to be more, to be more sharing of what we have. And I think the big part about this that also makes it so hard is we don't acknowledge that all of us, no matter what, have a lot to offer, that you all have so much to offer. And we don't think of things in, in these terms. I know, I know that can be hard, depending on how we feel about ourselves at certain times. We might think, well, I don't have anything to offer. I don't have anything to add to the conversation. I don't have a good question. I, I sort of don't matter, which is, which is a kind of um, a destructive, very destructive view that actually is a lack of an internal gen- generosity, of like this idea that I don't have anything of value to give. You know, so you really have to watch out for that one because that's really very pervasive. And also, these terms are all verbs also, to keep that in mind. These mental factors, they're not things in the mind. They're all behaviors. So, um, and of course, the biggest thing that you can give and the biggest thing that you can share uh, and the biggest act of all of this kind of caring is your attention. Giving your attention to somebody else is probably the greatest act of generosity that we can give and we have a lot of that i mean think about all the attention we give away to shit that's totally blameworthy you know i mean we 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 squat i mean as a resource and, and really what the what abby dharma talks about is attention is the great resource of the mind man do we squander it i mean i i, I squander my attention so much every day i look at my like I, I, I want i don't even know how to do it but i want to shut off the notification on my phone that tells me how much time i've been on my screen last week just squandered, 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 squandered. And then somebody else wants my attention and I don't even want to give it to them, you know. It's really hard too. This is a big lesson for me right now because I have a three-year-old who constantly wants my attention. And he does this thing to me and Shannon where like, if you don't pay attention to immediately, he goes, dad, dad, and he just screams. He'd be like two feet away from me screaming, dad. Like whatever you're doing, like I'm right here. And it's just like, wow, you know. And it's a lot of times it's like I'm looking at my phone or I'm watching something else or I'm like, yeah, I don't want, you know, like I've seen you do this thing you want to show me like 50 times in the last hour. Yes, I know that you have an Autobot and like you can change them from a car to a transformer. And I was like, but it's like, okay, like, can I do that thing and be generous and be generous? So being generous with our attention and our time and our listening, 
everybody, anybody can do that. Y'all can do that. I mean, that's like, the, that's the lowest hanging fruit here. Even like the generosity, uh, uh, and this is, I think, the way that I frame this, I think that was helpful for me, is, is actually your daily sitting practice, your meditation practice is an act of generosity to yourself and actually to the world. You will benefit greatly from your meditation practice, and so will the people who inter- encounter you. You know, you've encountered these people. You've, you've probably met people along the way, like-minded people, people at Dharma retreats or Dharma classes and trainings or wherever that you've met, and you're like, oh, I really like this person. And usually we like them, A, because they're an ebonic, they're cool, they're generous, they, they'll listen to our fucking annoying story that we know no one else wants to listen to, or they'll listen to this story we've told a thousand people, who none, none of which have been interested until now. And it feels good, doesn't it? It feels really good to be on the other side of that. So if that's true, then we, we want to learn how to be on both sides of that fence, which I think is the hard part, learning how to be on both sides of that fence. Um, and then lastly, um, so we have this kind of having a conscience, understanding community, like-mindedness, um, the fear, the healthy fear of, of doing wrong, of remorse, uh, generosity, and then kindness is the word that shows up in the Abhidharma, which is kind of, again, it was frustrating because it's like, I was like, well, metta's not in the Abhidharma, that doesn't make sense, but it is, though, it's actually, it, it, it's in the category of non-hatred, clearly non-hatred requires a, a, an element and a sense of, of kindness. And so when we think about um, metta, so it, and John says this too, and I think this is true, and I've been saying this for years, you can't have mindfulness without metta. They actually are co-arising experiences. So sati, recollection, memory, uh, paying attention, um, awareness. If the awareness is not accompanied by friendliness, then it's not mindfulness. It's just kind of your everyday awareness experience. And when you think about, and this was always the argument that I always got from my Theravada jihadist friends, was that, um, well, if there's right mindfulness, samasati in the Eightfold Path, and there's michasati, there's wrong, there must, if there's a right mindfulness, then there clearly must be wrong mindfulness, right? But when we look at the, at the, uh, the Pali grammar, the way that the Pali looks at negation is it's actually not wrong. It's, just, it's not that there's right mindfulness or wrong mindfulness. It's either mindfulness or not mindfulness. It's either present or it's not present. It's not right or wrong. It's just whether or not it's there. Because a lot of times, I don't know about you, but I can be going, you ever be going through the day, going through your life, going through an experience and feeling like, I think I'm mindful right now. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit irritated. Maybe I'm a little bit blaming, but maybe actually I'm not, maybe that's not quite mindfulness, actually. Maybe that's just kind of an awareness that's also not liberated or not accompanied. It's more accompanied by unwholesome mental factors, which we'll probably go through at some point. It's accompanied by a sense of being restless or irritated or aversive, um, which awareness of those things doesn't necessarily mean it's sort of mindfulness. So the other thing Andrew Linsky used to point out, and I think that this is important, is actually mindfulness is maybe kind of a little bit of a rare event. And it's very inter it's interdispersed. So if we take, you know, if we take a, a five let's just take a five minute meditation, there's probably within that five minutes, probably quite a few moments for a lot of us of mindfulness. But it kind of comes and goes. It kind of it's kind of a light that flickers on and off, I think. 
you know? And that's what I think makes it so hard. And I think that when we, this is why I teach Metta Vipassana. I think Metta Vipassana, and I talked to John about this as well. I think Metta Vipassana is the greatest cultivation of, of, of the mind. It's really the practice that's going to get you the best results quicker because it's a combination of the of these Brahma Viharas and the foundations of mindfulness understanding. That's why I have you, everybody start at the same thing, alternate mindfulness of breathing and kindness for yourself. And until you get that going for you, no mindfulness. You know, some awareness, some concentration, probably some irritation, probably some big feeling of, I don't think I'm doing this right. Or I'm, a th- I'm not doing this right because I can't keep my attention on the breath long enough. And all of that is a total big distraction and it's not actually important at all. So usually in, in the arena of cultivation, the, the really the thing that, the front and center thing that seems to be lacking in the Dharma mindfulness world across the board is that people don't understand or recognize or acknowledge that probably the, pri- the most primary skill of of cultivation of the mind is a kind and friendly attitude towards your mind. I'm not a big fan of steps, but if people wanted to know what step one in meditation is, clearly that's what it is. You have to be able to do that. You have to befriend your mind. I mean, most of our thoughts are so bad anyway. A lot of the shit that goes on in my mind is bad enough by itself. I don't need to go adding feeling bad about the bad thought. You know, so we really have to learn to befriend and to and to have that kind kind of acceptance of like this this play of the mind, this unfolding of mental events of mental phenomena actually has nothing to do with me. It's anatta. That's where the practice of anatta becomes helpful. None of this is me or mine. None of this is a reflection of my value or my worth as a human being. Right? That really, you really have to like get that down as a primary skill. And that can be a little bit of a hard idea because my, my thoughts feel like they're mine. Don't your thoughts feel like they belong to you? Mine do. Still, after all these years, after everything I just said, if I'm honest, if I shut the computer off and go sit on my cushion, I'm like, yep, here's my shitty mind again with all its wandering and judgment and this, that, and the other thing. So a lot of that, you know, that kind of training we have to do takes a lot of time. And, and I think it's easier to unhook it from being mine if my, if the sense of mine, the relationship I have with the sense of mine and me and I is a kind, is a friendly relationship to begin with. I think you can move through all the other practices much more uh, fluently, much more skillfully. Um, so sati and metta are... Um, there's a direct link. You can't have one without the other. Um, the re- you really can't. There has to be that has to, that that really has to be established first and foremost. Otherwise, you get all these kind of. Um, re- and, and really, if you look at the and I'll say this last because I don't want to keep going on. I want to do a practice. If you look at the um, unwholesome mental factors, which probably we'll do at some point. Um, there, the universal unwholesome mental factor that every the thing that determines the unwholesome mind state is restlessness is present in every unwholesome mental state. So as soon as you recognize there's a sense of restlessness in the mind or the body, you need to take that as a warning sign that something's not quite correct. 
And then the first thing we have to do is we have to befriend, we have to acknowledge, we have to accept, we have to, we have to work with the restlessness. Otherwise, the, otherwise, if the restlessness pervades, then we just get a drop-down menu of, then those unwholesome mental factors, they just compound, right? And I don't know about, and this is actually hard to accept too for me too, because I'm like, when I, when I learned this, I was like, yeah, I feel restless a, a lot of the time. Uh, anxiety, a sense of unease, which is again the opposite of metta. So metta is a big word. It means friendly. It means it also means, and I and I used to shy at this because my my trauma, my poorly, uh, sometimes sometimes this trauma informed business can get a little bit ridiculous. But but this whole um, safety thing, it's like yeah, we if we need to feel some degree of safety and some degree degree of protected and some degree of trustworthiness within our experience, and how you go about that is is not always necessarily so easy. But we have to be willing to go for it because it's really, really crucial. And then the mind, and then and 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 then in that space, really, when there's metta and sati, sati metta, mindfulness and metta, then there's nibbana. There's all these. When that's happening, there's all this other killer shit. There's, there's nibbana. There's equanimity. There's generosity. There's renunciation. There's you know the cash and prizes of the mind. They all. Once the metta and the sati are there, they all just kind of come. They all just kind of race in. And I think, honestly, that's about as good as it's going to get for us. I don't think that, the, and that's a, and of course, that's a very temporary state. It comes and goes. Um, but again, if we don't hold this as some kind of a bar, or we don't recognize this as a possibility or something to strive for, then we, you know, then we just end up barking up, up, barking up the wrong tree. And I would largely say most of my Dharma practice and my Dharma career has been me barking up wrong trees. You ever bark up the wrong tree? I don't even have any trees in my yard anymore. I don't have a tree to bark up anymore. So we'll do a practice on this and then we can have some conversation. So I'll invite you to find a comfortable way to sit. All right, good morning, everybody. I just want to make sure my recording is working properly, and it is. Yay. Uh, So today I'm going to further, we're on uh, section four. We've been going through these. Um, I've actually have been having a lot of fun doing this because it requires me to do some homework. Uh, what are called the beautiful mental factors, and so just to kind of repeat where we're at with these is that in the um, in the Buddhist manual on Buddhist psychology, which is a, a a huge volume in the Theravada Pitaka, called the Abhidharma, and the Abhidharma, what it is, is it's actually a radical exploration of what's known as the third foundation of mindfulness. Many of you probably know the four foundations of mindfulness. Third foundation of mindfulness, which is an investigation of chitta. And really, we don't get much, really, in, in classic teachings. We get like the presence of greed, hatred, and confusion, or the absence of those. And I've always been pretty unsatisfied um, with the teachings and the practices I've learned on chitta because it seems like a huge, hugely important topic, mindfulness of the mind. Um, and so that led me to my exploration of Abhidharma where it's, you know, I was talking to John Peacock about this recently, thankfully, about really the, the Abhidharma is a complete analysis of the third foundation of mindfulness. And what they do is they break, they break the mind down into 52 mental factors. And there's factors that are universal. There's factors that are in every mind moment. There's occasional factors. Um, there's uh, unwholesome mental factors. And there's beautiful mental factors, which is not that hard to understand how that might work. 
So we've been going through this 26 mental factors uh, in the beautiful category. We've already gone through three of them. I put them in categories, or I should say my teacher, Steve Armstrong, puts them in categories, and I stole this from him. Uh, I already talked about authenticity, caring, and creativity. So today I thought with the hustle and bustle of the holiday season, uh, in the varying experiences you probably have around that, I thought I would uh, offer the, the fourth one, which is contentment. And then next week we'll do the last one, which is awareness. I wanted to do awareness last because awareness, as you know, gets all the glory in the Buddhist world. Mindfulness, just have mindfulness and everything will be fine. Yeah, right. So uh, actually we find only one term that signifies contentment, but it's a term that holds uh, a lot of pedigree in the list of Buddhism. And this term, usually what I would call it is... um, The term is pasadi, which is usually kind of poorly translated, I think, as tranquility. I I don't know about you, but I don't use this word. This word tranquility doesn't actually mean a whole lot to me. When I think of tranquility, I think of tranquilizers. You know, I I don't really. uh, So I think really the word would be contentment. Um, It's also classified, um, which I think is interesting, in the Abhidharma as a, a, a mind of coolness and ease, which you can imagine I like both those terms because coolness is associated with Nibbana. So this contentment, this Pasadi, is definitely linked to a coolness of um, Nibbana. It's also um, ease, and you probably all know that I prefer the term ease often when I'm speaking of metta. So in in this kind of Pasadi mental state, um, it's really a kind of neutralizing state of mind. It's the mind of non-disturbance, the opposite of pasadi or coolness would be reactivity, which we know is a word that encompasses basically the entirety of the second noble truth. Uh, restlessness, reactivity, worry, and resistance. And so what, the not, what not pasadi is, when we're not in that kind of calm, contentment state of mind, it, it, it's a kind of, some Zen people call it the, the, the great disease of the mind is the mind that is constantly disturbed and irritated and preoccupied with trying to get what it wants and trying to avoid what it doesn't want. You must be all very familiar with this. This is kind of the big, you know, the big bully on the block in the mind, I find out, is is the mind uh, constant needing to get this and needing to get rid of that and what that would mean for my life if I could get this and I could get rid of that. And that's this kind of anti-Pasadi. That's really what reactivity is. And it's hard. And it's also part of the, interestingly enough, the definition of dukkha, uh, this, this thing that we have to embrace. And part of it is just like we're really, I think we need to come to terms with the fact that this isn't going to stop happening. And it's that, you know, when we don't get what we want, that's dukkha. And then, and then the, the attitude that we have around that, about what, what, what does it mean for me to be a person who's not getting what they want? Do I have a story about being a person who doesn't get what they want? I never get what I want. I've never gotten what I want. Why do I always continue to not get the things that I want? And there's a disturbance in the mind. There, there's an irritation in the mind. Uh, there's a lot of reactivity in the mind. There's probably a lot of storytelling going on in the mind about what it means for me to be a person who's not getting what they want. Uh, and then all of the external reasons why I'm a person who's not getting what they want. Whose fault is it? Who's to blame? And I don't know about you, but that can occupy a good portion of one's day. Right? 
not getting what I want. And then the other side of that is being irritated and frustrated um, and reactive towards uh, getting what I don't want. I didn't want this to happen. I didn't want that to happen. Um, and so this is just constant um, disturbance in the mind, which is a kind of a really a lack of ability. It's a couple of abilities. There's an ethical ability. Uh, there's also a, a technical meditative ability. First of all, you have to recognize when this is happening. And it's hard to recognize it when it's happening because even when it's happening, we're so bought into the content that we don't actually use the pause and go, oh, my mind is disturbed right now. My mind is disturbed right now. I wonder how I could work with this meditatively or contemplatively. Usually we just kind of go at it. We try to figure it out. We try to solve. We try to undermine. We try to, you know, we do all kinds of strange and unusual things. So it's kind of a big deal. Um, and so this this contentment, uh, this train I don't like the word tranquility, but I'll use it because it's in there. I think I think the best way to think about it is a, is a contentment of mind. Um, it also comes from a line in the Metta Sutta that says um, the mind of Metta is a mind that is content and easily satisfied. And that means that we there's a lot of renunciation that we're allowed that we're able to to want the things we have and to enjoy the life we have and having this meaningful life. And if your life is already meaningful and you already are recognizing the things that you have and wanting the things you have and are feeling some goodness and some appreciation, then when you don't get what you want, you don't get as irritated. So if I'm already like a little bit unhappy or like don't have a lot of meaning in my life or feel lost or I feel like there's this new word I like called languishing, which is the opposite of thriving. When we're in those kind of states, which also can even be um, experienced as a kind of low-grade depression, which I, I've been haunted by this. I, I, I don't know if it's true. I don't have the clinical training to make the diagnosis, but I do believe that I have this um, thing called dysimia. I don't know if you any clinical folks that there know this word, or perhaps someone had, might have mentioned it to you a time or two. Dysimia, which is kind of a low-grade chronic depression that I think that I, that I, think that I do have. Um, I, I see it all the time. I actually take Wellbutrin for it, frankly, and I find that it's helpful. But it's just this kind of it's just kind of the assault and the in the you know the the reality of having so many th having so many experience of not getting what I want and so many experience of having things I didn't want happen there creates this kind of depression uh, attitude in the mind uh, and it's really really difficult to to overcome and so we gotta we gotta kind of watch out for that because if that becomes a kind of default mode or that becomes a kind of place to stand on then I'm I'm actually I'm like pre-irritated I'm like I'm not you know in this moment there's nothing going on I'm not I'm not not getting what I want right now and I'm not you know it's not happening right now but any fucking second now some email is going to come in some person's going to drop the ball some somebody's not going to do what they said they were going to do and there's like almost it's like you're pre the mode is just kind of awaiting for the next person to fucking blow it, you know, and that's, there's a languishing there. There's a kind of this feeling and, and you have to really watch out for that. And I think a lot of people have this and it's the accumulated effect of all these things. So we, we have to really um, work with this. I think actively, I think we have to do some gratitude, mudita practice, mental practice. We really, I think there's a lot of internal work we have to do to get ourselves back up to at least some kind of even baseline. 
where we can handle this. Now, this other word, this other word, Pasadi, uh, it shows up as a mental factor, a beautiful mental factor, but it also shows up, for those of you who are familiar with Satipatthana, it's also one of the seventh awakening factors in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Um, and, and there it's described as um, also as a peacefulness and a coolness. There's that word coolness again. Um, it should be regarded as the opposite of restlessness and worry, which creates distress. Restlessness and worry, which creates distress. And this is where um, another facet of dukkha that doesn't get categorized so much. It's, it's that there's that kind of, there's just the dukkha of experience, but then there's the dukkha of construction. And that is the, the way that we begin to construct a reality and we construct a worldview and we construct a self-view over the many, many remembered experiences of not getting what I want and getting what I don't want. I, I build, I construct a mechanism that kind of believes and buys into that and can kind of reconstruct that. And so that can be a lot of times, we have to watch out for that because that can be built right into the bricks and mortar of your mind. You know, and, and there's a kind of like... Um, it can manifest in a destructive sense of a kind of like, well, it's all, you know, it's all just a big disappointment anyway. You know, in, in the progress of insight, it's outlined as sort of a dark night of a soul. We can kind of, we probably, many of you have had, for those of you who've been sober or got sober or once or twice or a few times have been through some hard shit, you probably know this experience. You know, where, where, where you're just like, oh, my, you're like, it, can things actually get any worse right now? Right, and so we 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 can we can circle that, and we can come through that. The other thing that that's mentioned in the um, Satipatthana that I think is interesting, that I now you'll put this in there. He has a section at the end of the Awakening Factors, which he talks to about as the kind of anti hindrances. Like, what are some things that you can do to develop this tranquility, this this pasadi? What are some things that contribute to this experience of contentment? And they're pretty interesting. I'll read the list. Good food agreeable weather, comfortable posture, balanced behavior, which I think is the ethical component, a balanced behavior. This is interesting. Avoiding restless people and associating with calm people. Shocking. Have you ever been around restless, agitated people and then you walk away from the encounter fearing restless and agitated? It's interesting though that the Buddha's like, yeah, you should totally avoid those people if and when you can. Right, and then the last one is um, inclining the mind accordingly, which is the um, the meditative aspect of that, which is that kind of having to dig the mind out of its own hole. And a lot of times, I feel like sometimes that's what I do in my practice. I'm still digging myself out of some hole, you know, by by inclining and by cultivating and by not letting myself um, default to this kind of. Uh, what's it all for? A very a kind of an apathy um, experience, which which can manifest as kind of a, a a kind of destructive equanimity or an indifference or an apathy or an ambivalence, um, and we have to watch out for that because that can be very pervasive. It can also be hard to notice. It can be hard to recognize that quality of mind when it's actually present. So, got to keep keep an eye on the the when we start turning away from contentment and we start you know, wandering into the fields, into the acreage of, of reactivity, it, it usually begins by a kind of indifferent uh, kind of um, what's it all for, uh, an apathy, 
Uh, and I think this, I think this word ambivalence, I don't, I think ambivalence is a very destructive mind state that a lot of people don't realize how destructive it is. You know, the, 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 it's the classic class song, should I stay or should I go? You know, it's like, and we just can't, we can't, we can't make a move. And we just, you ever do that? You have a choice to make. You're not sure what to do. And you just think about it till your brain starts bleeding. And, and you, and sometimes you don't even, still don't even make the damn choice. The, the, you know, the, the, the suffering of indecision is brutal, right? And so I want to talk about also too, an, uh, another aspect of this is that a lot of times, um, this contentment can be correlated with, with what's called samadhi or what's called concentration. And as, as some of you know, have heard me talk about this before, I'm not a huge fan of the word concentration because I think the, I think the way that we think about concentration in English and the way the concentration is described in the Pali are so different that the word concentration just makes things more confusing. So this, where, where, because the next path, they're not the next path factor. Right after the awakening factor of contentment and pasadi comes concentration, samadhi, which really I think, and also the same thing as the eightfold, the eighth path factor. So again, this this word is circling around a lot of huge ideas. It's associated with with samadhi as an awakening factor. It's associated with samadhi as a path factor, uh, and it's associated with kind of this contentment. The sense of coolness and ease, this nibbana, this metta, all these things are all right in there. We're talking about the same experience, this nibbana, this metta. And I think that when we really start to arrive and we really start to put it together, when we really start to build the Dharma life, it's not that we're having right concentration, it's that we're having complete integration. I think samadhi, um, probably best translated in English, sometimes as collectedness and collectedness and integration for me are kind of the same. And that is, you know, my, my, my whole experience is integrated. My, my views and my intentions and my words and my action and how I'm living and how I'm working and how I'm thinking and how I'm imagining are all integrated. They're kind of in conversation with each other all the time. Because I don't know about, you know, the, the experience of being disintegrated or really actually being compartmentalized, which I'm sure some of you have put a lot of stock on that strategy, is that we, 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 we don't integrate, actually, we compartmentalize. And we think, well, my practice is this thing that I do over here, and my work life is this thing that I do over here, and my family life is this thing I do over here, and my relationships is the thing that I do over here. And, and then we kind of, we have to kind of keep all these compartments separate. And, you know, and when we show up to work, we have to kind of show up in that role. And we have to kind of play all these roles. And sometimes we actually have to, right? Like depending on our work and what we do. But I think we want to try to limit. Um, and this is why I think associating with calm people and avoiding restless people is helpful. Because I know that when I'm around agitated, restless people, my tendency is to be more people-pleasing. I don't want to agitate the restless person anymore, so I might actually conform to their views or their, I might actually kind of acclimate more to where they're coming from just because I don't really want to pour gasoline on the fire. And that's also very irritating. It's very discontenting to have to be in that experience. So when we think about, you know, this contentment and this integration is we're really um, the unified mind. We're really kind of starting to bring it all together. And really the practice is really kind of working for us where we can see where we can see where we've been 
and where we haven't been so skillful and where things have been hard, we can see what we have done to some degree, whether, whether, what the work has been, whether it's recovery work or therapeutic work or meditation work or uh, lively. There's all kinds of work we do, right? All this Dharma work that we all do. We can see what we've done and we can start to actually have a kind of realistic assessment of how that worked. And that, that, that feels integrated. It also feels content. It feels calm. Um, there's a lot of really good things going on. So I think, you know, this is a good time as the new year comes up, I think, to reflect. And maybe we'll do some of this in January. I think it's important for us to spend periods of time throughout the year, at least once a year, where we can kind of get a sense of what's working, what's not working. Um, where am I still being driven by this kind of uh, core belief that we have that, that, that I would actually be happy if I could get the things I wanted and could avoid the things that I don't want. And I don't think you ever, ever really get over that. Because I actually kind of believe that if I got what I wanted and didn't and avoided what I didn't want, I actually would be, I don't know if I'd be happy, I'd be happier. But again, that that's not the measuring stick that we want to be operating from because you can't choose to have that happen. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how many good choices you make, how much money you have, all the stuff that you think that you need to have to be able to have that happen is all make-believe, man. There's no guarantee there. And so we have to be very careful that we don't slide into that mode of operating because that is kind of, you know, the MO of our culture. And so again, we have to be willing to, uh, when when we're looking at sort of our distress and our unhappiness and the things in our lives that we're not happy about or aren't working out, which we have to do to some degree, our dukkha, if you will, we have to realize what we want to stand up against that is not happiness, but actually meaning. And can I do, what can I do that's meaningful uh, right now with my time and my day and my work and everything that I do uh, so that I can have this kind of, that, that's going to balance out our distress and it's going to balance out um, the things that have happened that we're not okay with, that we may never be okay with, the disappointments and the losses and the, the not getting what we wanted and the getting what we didn't want and all that stuff, which, which is kind of the, thing, the stuff of life. You know, that we all have our version of it. We all have our story. You all probably have a story. Maybe you have several stories. Maybe you have a, you know, a small novel full of short stories with all that stuff. And so um, we want to be careful we don't get into the thing of, okay, well, how can I be happy in spite of that? But really, how can I find meaning in spite of that or meaning actually within that? And that's, that's, how, you be, that's how you develop this sama samadhi complete integration is that there's um there's an acknowledgement actually there's not denial i like this word acknowledgement i don't like the word acceptance so much i think the word acknowledgement is a good english word because we're nothing we're not saying we necessarily accept it or that we like it or that it's okay or that it's we're just acknowledging like yeah this is a thing and that's really what acknowledgement is, is that there's something that's happened or happening that you can recognize and you can recognize and you can acknowledge it and you can recognize and you can acknowledge it and you can thrive. Your thriving is independent upon these things. It's dependent upon kind of how we overcome these things. Um, and that's, that's a lot of work. That takes a lot of energy, a lot of virya, a lot of vigor, a lot of enthusiasm, um, and it's, you know, it's 
not something that's going to happen as a kind of result of a passive meditation practice where you just learn to sit quietly and kind of watch the contents of your mind come and go. It's a very active, it's the walking of the path, right? On one hand, there's just there's, there's being able to, to, you know, there's kind of three aspects to approaching this path. There's, there's understanding that there actually might even be a path, right? That takes a lot of work. There's being able to see or to have the vision and the imagination to be able to get a sense of where the path would go and how we would get it. And then there's actually the walking of it. There's the one foot in front of the other, which I think is the hardest part, which a lot of times is the kind of uh, the walking forward with contentment and walking forward with care and walking forward with contentment and walking forward with care and not letting um, the obstacles along the way stop you from continuing. Because there will be obstacles. I mean, I think that's probably, you know, that's built into the path as the obstacles. So I thought we would do a meditation on contentment, uh, on these kind of, uh, the, the, what I would call, uh, in a very simple way, the mind of no problem. No problem. And every problem is a construction that you that you have. That's the Dukkha Sankara, which is a big huge ticket item in buddhist psychology no one uses this word but really our our actually problem if you if, if i can even say that after what i just said is dukkha sankara is is the is the constructing of the problem and we can every problem you have or have ever had or ever will have is a, is, is a problem that you have constructed and then the mind becomes disturbed and the mind becomes reactive, and the mind becomes to fixate, and becomes to avoid, and to change, and the mind becomes addicted to problem solving. Right When we didn't even ask the hard question, are you sure there's a problem? I went through this yesterday, I was all worked up about a bunch of shit, and I like had to sit down and be like, actually, right now, none of this is even true. These are all maybes. But in my mind goes, yeah, but they're very likely maybes. Right, so I'm just saying I'm like so. Basically, what I'm doing right now is I'm constructing problems that aren't happening, and trying to figure out how I'm going to solve these problems if and when they arise. Really, this is what I'm going to do with my Saturday afternoon? Are you fucking kidding me? And I did it. I did it anyway. It's a strong tendency. So we'll do some practice on some contentment, and then we can uh, talk about this a little bit more. All right, everybody. So this morning we're going to conclude uh, with the um, the uh, final se- section on um, the Abhidharma. So I'll say, for those of you who haven't been here, I'll talk a little bit about how we sort of got here. But for the last five weeks, uh, I've been talking about um, the, what are called the beautiful mental factors in the Abhidharma. So the Abhidharma is a, a, a Buddhist discourse. It's part of the Pali Canon. It's, it's an analysis of what are called really Buddhist psychology. And really what it is, it takes the third foundation of mindfulness, which is known as chitta, and it does a complete analysis and a full compendium of the mind um, as, a, as an organized system, uh, which is super cool. And what it does is it breaks down the mind into what are called 52 mental factors. So there's these 52 kind of little mental events. And instead of chittas, they're called chetesikas, which is a kind of smaller unit of a chitta. And there's, 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 there's a bunch of categories. So there's a category that's universal. There's mental factors that are in every state of mind, things like attention, for example, in every state of mind. There's also um, uh, 
occasional factors that are there sometimes. And then there's kind of the list of the unwholesome mental factors and the list of the wholesome mental factors. But one thing I like about Abhidharma, they don't call them wholesome mental factors. They call them beautiful mental factors. And so if you look at those, there are, the standard list is, let me see if I can find it here. There are considered to be 25 in universal, in every wholesome mind state, every beautiful mind state, there are 19 mental factors that are present. So that's a lot, 19 things going on in the mind when mindfulness is present. So what I did is I broken them down into five categories. And the five categories are awareness. There's a category of awareness, uh, mental factor category of authenticity, of caring, of contentment, and creativity. So I've done all of them. I'm doing awareness today because that's the last one. And I'll, I'll, what I'll do is I'll go through these talks in my Pro Tools and I'll chop them up so that way it'll be one long talk um, for those of you who want to listen to them. Um, and so really we're talking about uh, awareness. So we're talking now we're talking about mindfulness. We're talking about sati. Um, it's the Pali term for sati. Where we find sati is in the teachings of sati patana, which is also known as the teachings of the four, foundational mind, four foundations of mindfulness. Now, the other thing that, that's important to point out around Satipatthana or the Four Foundations is every school, in, all the way from later schools of Buddhism, Zen, Tibetan, all the various forms of Tibetan, all the way up into secular mindfulness, John Kabat-Zinn, MBSR, every teaching that you would ever learn or every mindfulness instruction you'll ever find, they all actually come directly from the Satipatthana. So it's a pretty well-respected and well-revered text that even, even in a secular sense, all the stuff they talk about and even things like MBSR or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, all, all of the technical instructions come right out of the Satipatthana. And there's actually two terms that we see associated with awareness. So out, out of the 19, only two of them are awareness. Sati is one of them. The other one is really hard to pronounce. It's called Tatra Majahatata. As a mouthful for you. Now, this is actually a really important term that nobody knows about. This, this term usually translates as neutrality of mind. But what it is, it, it's a synonym for equanimity. So usually most of us know equanimity as upekka. Um, but upekka just means kind of this neutral feeling. Upekka, uh, equanimity as upekka is also the same term as when we talk about vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, or pleasant, unpleasant, neither. The neither or neutral is just upekka. So it's really not that profound of an experience. The word that does the heavy lifting in Abhidharma is this tatra majahamatata, because it really means there in the middleness. And so what it's pointing to is, I'll just read it right out of the manual, because it's actually pretty good. The Pali word literally means there in the middleness. It's a synonym for equanimity. It has the mental attitude of balance and impartiality. It has the characteristic of conveying consciousness as the mental factors evenly. So it's really a balanced kind of uh, mental factor. It also prevents um, deficiency and excess. So it it prevents us from being excessive on one side and... um, Excessive or deficient. Now, what, what does that actually mean? Well, when you look at one of the other ways, the way that sati, mindfulness, does it, one of the causes of mindfulness is, is, the, is the development of the four foundations and strong perceiving. 
Strong perceiving doesn't get talked about. Actually, the, the one teacher I know who's talked about this the best is a woman named um, Tenzin Chogi, who's a Tibetan teacher who teaches uh, perceptual theory. And perceptual theory in the Tibetan Buddhist Abhidharma is pretty good. And so what that means is that basically the way that the mind perceives is that when we come into contact with any experience or any object, we either, we either project qualities onto the object that aren't there or we omit qualities that are there. So it's kind of a, we have it a bias towards everything. So, you know, if we like the object, if we, if the object is desirable, we want it, we project all these qualities onto it and how great it is and how uh, awesome it's going to be. And then we omit any sort of aspect of it that would be unpleasant or unknowing because we want the object so bad. We project qualities that aren't onto it and we subtract qualities that are, right? You've probably seen yourself do this. This is what implicit bias is. You know, you ever, you ever sell yourself on some idea that you came up with and then you follow through with the idea and then you have the experience and you start realizing all the unpleasant aspects of the experience that you overlooked because you wanted the fucking thing so bad, <laughs> right? That's, that's, that's what this is. This is like a big deal, you know, projection, omission, projection, omission, excessiveness, deficiency. So even with this is why mindfulness and equanimity and Abhidharma are so important because mindfulness in and of itself doesn't have this evening quality to it. Mindfulness is just kind of defined as this um, is to remember, but as a mental factor, it signifies a presence of mind and attentiveness to the present rather than the faculty of memory regarding the past. It's characterized as non-wobbling, non-floating. Um, and its proximate cause is, what causes sati is strong perceiving and the development of the four foundations of mindfulness. But even there, even just this quality of, so basically what it means, if you even look at Gethin's analysis, which I've looked at yesterday, of sati, um, usually mindfulness is the term that we use, which is kind of basically okay. But really what it really mostly means is to just bear in mind, to just keeping certain things in mind. So in and of itself, mindfulness is really not necessarily that profound of an experience. It, 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 so, you're not, so it's characterized by where there's a non-distractive quality to it. There's a remembering quality to it. Let's see, he goes on over here to talk about this. So... Um, so the, it, it's a, a being able to bear something in the mind, the state of not being distracted and not forgetting. So it, it did. It's that sense of just being able to be in your experience without getting pulled in five hundred thousand directions, which actually not that easy either. You know, being able to just be present enough with the experience that we're having that we're kind of attuning to the experience, we're not getting yanked in the five thousand directions of mental distraction, right? So we need to develop that. And then when it's backed by this neutrality of mind, this kind of impartiality, then we can we even have an evenness, an even quality of mind, being able to assess the situation um, with more clarity, with a sense of more presence. So these are, um, and then it's understood that when 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 sati is there, uh, so when we look at mindfulness in these beautiful mental factories faculties of Abhidharma, the thing that's a little bit of a bummer. I think, or just maybe even interesting is that probably honestly, like mindfulness, actual <clears throat> mindfulness is probably a pretty rare moment for most of us. You know, we probably have, you know, we're, 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 we're you know, so that's why when we think about mindfulness as being samasati, 
we want to think about it as being not right or wrong, but, but complete or incomplete. And so one of the practices that's so hard is that when you're going through the complexity of your life and you're going through your daily situations day to day, off the cushion, really engaging with the world, one of the things that we really have to do is we have to be present enough and non-distracted enough and willing enough to look at a situation that we find ourselves again and again and again, which in CEB is called cognitive reappraisal or cognitive reframing. You know, it's like the analogy they use is like you live in an apartment in the city and, you know, somebody's banging on the wall next door, right? And you're like, oh my God, this person's so annoying. I can't believe I live next to this person. What an asshole. This person's torturing me banging on the wall. When in fact, what they're trying to do is hang up a cupboard or trying to hang up some shelves, right? They're just trying to hang up shelves. They're not banging on the wall going, I don't like my neighbor. I'm going to torture this poor guy. But that's usually, again, we, we, we project onto it. We omit so what we really have to do in our lives is, A, we have to slow down, right? We can't be going 1,000 miles all the way around. And also we have to bear in mind that we never, ever have all the information about the situation that you find yourself in. So you should probably never really be convinced that you know what to do or to not do. That would be a, probably a pretty accurate assumption to make. Just just add, if, if you want to have some assumptions, the assumption should be that you don't totally see the whole picture here. Right? And the problem is, if we, again, if we are dictated by this pleasure-pain dichotomy, if we like the way that we see the situation, like, oh, I'm so smart, I'm seeing the situation so clearly, I'm such a smart person, all that means is that you like it and that you're just projecting shit onto it that's not actually there, and you're overlooking stuff that is. Right. And I, I actually I'm, I'm pretty bad at this because I when I get excited about an idea. You can't really talk me out of it otherwise. But I, what I had to learn and my wife is good at this because she tends to be more aversive. I look at a situation and I try to see what's right. She looks at a situation and sees what's wrong. And between those two, we usually, you know, usually it's not pleasant, but we usually end up in some scenario that's actually somewhat close to reality. Because my tend, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> my tendency is to omit. I'm like, I don't want to look at the potential side effects of this. I just want to do it. I want to do it so bad. I don't even want to hear about what could go wrong. You know, so a lot of the way this works is that the more we, in any given situation. The more that we slow down, the more that we look at it and relook at it and look at it and relook at it, first of all, we become more and more familiar with what's going on. And I think this word familiar is important because actually one of, one of the people who defines meditation as familiarity is, is, is the Dalai Lama. When the Dalai Lama talks about meditation, he talks about the act of meditation as a process of familiarizing yourself with a particular object or familiarizing yourself with a particular experience. Which means that we, we, to become familiar with an experience, we have to be with it, we have to be intimate with it, we have to be open to it, we have to kind of put aside our projections and so forth and try to really tune in. This is why, you know, like paying attention to breathing, you know, is, is a good mind training because you become intimately familiar with that experience. And because the experience is almost never really that pleasant or that unpleasant, that that's what we're looking for, that even keel. No, the in-breath is like this and the out-breath is like that. It, you don't usually project or omit qualities onto breathing because there's not many qualities to, to project or omit. 
So it actually, that mindfulness of breathing as a strategy gets you kind of in tune with the, with the actual uh, quality of the experience so that the mind is there, it's non-wobbling, it's familiar, it's even, it doesn't usually have a preference for the in-breath or the out-breath. I mean, the, biggest, the hardest thing about mindfulness of breathing is to not get bored. That's the problem. If there's nothing to project or omit, then I just get bored. Because I like projecting and omitting. You know? So there's there's something to be said about that. Um, so to just read more about this, because they really unpack this really good. Um, so this Tatra Majahamata, this other term for equanimity, its function is to prevent deficiency in excess or to prevent partiality. It should be seen as the state of looking on with equanimity in Chitta and Chaitesikas, like a charioteer who looks on the equanimity of the thoroughbreds progressing evenly across the roadway. Neutrality of mind becomes the sublime quality of equanimity towards all living beings. As such, it treats beings free from discrimination without preference and prejudice, looking upon as equal. This equanimity should not be confused with its near enemy, which is the uh, mindedness of indifference or ignorance. So what does that kind of talk to? So this is really, I think, where it gets to be important because one of the big traps around equanimity, and, 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 and I like to say this because it's true, Buddhist, this is where Buddhist teachers are famous for this kind of equanimity, which is kind of, uh, they, they appear to be sort of nothing bothers them. You know, the kind of a, a kind of cold stoicism, if you will, where there's that kind of sense of like, um, wow, this person's so equanimous and so at ease. They, you know, they, they don't seem to get worked up about anything. And it's like actually, the, the, the truth of the matter is they don't give a shit. You know, and that that that's the near enemy of equanimity is a kind of, a, a, if I'm indifferent, I, you know, it's a kind of apathy. It's like whatever, I don't really care anyway kind of a nihilistic stoicism where it's just like, of course, if I have no dog in the fight of any situation because I'm so self-centered and I don't really care about what's going on, it's easy to have that kind of equanimity. And that is not what we're looking for. And it's easy to fall into that trap. Um, It's easy to fall into that trap because a lot of times we think that uh, emotional balance or equanimity should kind of be this flatline experience, right? Like, but that's really flatline just means you're dead. Right. You know, we all know this in the hospital. You don't really want to be flatlined. And the interesting thing about 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 this idea of equanimity is that the more in tune you are with your experience, the more equanimity you have, the more you're able to engage with the complexity of your life, open to feelings and emotions and different perspectives. Actually, what happens is it's not a flatline. It's actually it's actually massive peaks and valleys, but they're quick. Like they and they've done this with the Dalai Lama and they've done this with like Matu Ricard and some other Tibetan monks. When you when you when they would do equanimity practice, you would imagine that the 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 whatever the the little EMR thing, the little medical picture would be kind of more like this, right? But it's not. It's like because what happens is they they're but they're they're really really steep. They're not long like this. They're steep. They shoot up and they shoot down really really quick because they're so in tune. That things come and they go, and they come and they go. They come on. So the uh, Dalai Lama, fast onset of emotion. He walks into a room. He sees a little boy in the corner of the room in a wheelchair, feels this huge spike of sadness, followed by this huge spike of compassion. It moves down, and it just kind of comes, and it goes 
fast and strong. In fact, they say that if you got plugged in, if they could like plug you in like the Matrix and you got plugged into the Dalai Lama's nervous system, you wouldn't be able to handle it. It'd be like heroin and speed or something. You just would be a total speedball. You wouldn't even be, you'd be like, get me out of here. But that's not what we think though, is it? That's not really how I would, I used to think. I always thought it would be kind of this really dry, which is why he giggles and laughs all the time. So we have to be careful about this. So, um, the other thing that we have to keep in mind, I think, especially for those of us, or all of us who, who don't live in a monastic setting where our, our life is constantly, constantly, probably more so than we can handle. That was the other thing that came out of the book that I read recently, Robert Wright's book called Why Buddhism is True, is that from the view of evolutionary biology, we are not designed to handle life in the modern world. We really aren't. We are not. And if you can handle life in the modern world, like that's not good. That is destructive resilience. You know, so I think I think there's actually, I get a lot of relief in that idea of like, yeah, I'm not even programmed. Like if you look at like how slow evolutionary biology works and evolutionary psychology and how fast things have changed in the industrial revolution, like, you know, what, what is it, two, you know, 19, 100 years, 1920 to now. Oh my God, shit has changed. Shit's way different than it was two years ago. Like how how much do you think your uh, your psychology and your biology? You think your evolutionary psychology and your biology? You think you adapt that much in two years? The needle doesn't even move. But yet the world, the pace of the world, and the pace of information, and the pace of change, and the pace of uncertainty, and the pace of potential annihilation, and the pace of all the stuff we're going on, we are not equipped to handle that at all. So I think much of the practices, and, 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 and ironically, usually when I talk to you all, this is, usually seems to be kind of the conversation. Is one of the things we have to do from a mindfulness dharma perspective is we have to learn how to uh, take care of our nervous systems and trying to be careful about the choices that we make about how, much, how many hours a week do we work, what kind of an urban environment do we live in, uh, you know, how, how, you know, how plugged into the matrix are you? And, you know, and are you happy with that? And, and if you're not, how do, you, how do you slowly move out of the matrix and try to, you know, uh, maybe put yourself in a situation where you don't have as many financial demands or put yourself in a situation where, you know, you're, you're, you do have to, there is a lot of wisdom in learning how to manage uh, external demands in a way that are going to put you in a position where you can probably feel like you can adapt to what's going on with some degree of confidence with where you're not, you don't just step out of your house every day and it's just a whirlwind of chaos. And then at five o'clock you get spit out the other side and you come walking back into the apartment going, I don't even know what the hell just happened, man. That was just crazy. Right. And, and I say this a lot too, cause I, well, five years ago or so I, after my motorcycle accident, many of you know, I made, I made this kind of drastic choice to come out here because I was just like, I was like my mind and my emotions and my mind, I just can't handle living in an urban, I was in LA, which I never wanted to live there anyway, but I just can't do it. Like, I just can't, you know, all the meditation and all the trainings and all the stuff in the world. I just, I get, I get fried, you know? And so I think some of times, a lot of the choices that we end up making in our Dharma practice are kind of lifestyle choices. 
Um, and I think that probably to some degree, that's probably the more heavy lifting of our practice is trying to put ourselves in trying to in, in, in to think it through and to realize it's a long, slow process, doesn't always happen immediately. We're trying where we try to put ourselves in, we try to set ourselves up so that way we're in conditions that are at least somewhat manageable. And the one thing that I push back against, that I always push back against, uh, and I think this largely comes from the monastic worldview, and I think it's destructive, is this idea that Buddhist teachers and Buddhist theory kind of can point to is that like, it's never the conditions, it's always our, you know, it's never the conditions we find ourselves in, it's our relationship to the conditions. And I think that's total bullshit. I am sorry, but sometimes it's the fucking conditions. In fact, I think a lot of times it's the conditions. So I think a lot of the wisdom aspect is being like, okay, like is being able to assess and being able to evaluate and being able to have critical thinking about like, you know what? These conditions are just not going to work for me. And I need to remove myself from these conditions. And that sounds very anti-Buddhist, right? Sounds like just aversion. But I think it's just actually good old-fashioned intelligence. Like I, I can't work at this place anymore. I can't live in the city anymore. I can't, I can't be in this. I just can't, and just, just surrender. Not like in a failure sense, but in a wisdom sense of like, yeah, I just can't like do this to myself. And and the thing that makes it so hard is, is it's really hard to do that in our culture. If you don't have a boatload of money, or like some, if you don't have some degree of flexibility, I mean, a lot of times it, it, it it's a, it's an, it's the ongoing dukkha of the world. You know, and I think that if we don't take that on as a practice and think about that intelligently and, and realistically, we can really kind of get ourselves in this bad rock in a hard place situation. When it's like really trying to take that on and maybe and maybe for many of us, I know for me, that has sort of been my practice is everything I'm saying is trying to uh try to understand that that you know it's a constant constant uh, feels like a war my internal resources are always at war with my external demands but part of that is understanding like okay like how can i better choose myself into or out of why do i have so many external demands and in 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 what external demands that i actually sign up for willingly willing participant putting myself in impossible situations and then getting pissed off at the situation. I'm like, well, I no one put a gun to my head. So I think a lot of this comes down to choice. I think actually at the end of the day, the greatest Dharma choice, the greatest, not Dharma choice, the greatest skill of all is the skill to be able to make good choices for ourselves. You know, I think that's really, at the end of the day, that's really what's going to, that's really what's going to matter the most. And to watch out how we might be making choices out of fear or not making choices out of fear or how we have ambivalence around certain choices. And that, and that we all have a very unique kind of choice template. So also I think we have to understand what our template is for choice making or not choice making or uh, how do we actually go about that. Because that's really, you know, if we actually use karma you know, just as a kind of cause and effect thing, that's really what determines everything. It's, it's the choice that you made or didn't make. It's really, it's really what's driving the ship. So setting ourselves up using these practices, these beautiful mental factors, and being able to understand how they work and how we access them, and they're all designed to help us navigate the world, to help us navigate our experience more skillfully. 
So um, we'll do a practice here and then we'll talk a little bit more about this. So you can find a comfortable way to sit. And so we can use this uh, theory in a very simple way of practice of just like the choice to being in the body, the choice to be in sati, the choice to stay present in the body or the choice to jump on that thought that you want to think so bad. Right. And I think that this is a good and try, try to understand that uh, that attention does have an element of choice to it. You can choose if mindfulness is present, if some degree of awareness is present, you can choose what you pay attention to. And what you choose to pay attention to will have tremendous positive or negative outcomes on your experience. So this most fundamental aspect of mind training um, is always relevant. 